Hi, and welcome to this week's Happy Manifesto podcast. My name is Maureen Egbe. And I'm Henry Stewart. I want to find out more about a joyful strategy. You know, how can we create more joy at work? And before we do that, I want to ask you, what's your favourite song? Well, of course, there is Happy by Farrell. What's he called? Farrell. Pharrell. Pharrell Williams. Pharrell Williams. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I love that song. But the my other favourite is KLF. Justified and Ancient, Last Train to Transcontinental. Those really um, drive me. Oh, wow. I would never have thought that. Okay, so unfortunately, we, we've lost a, a great musical icon, mm-hmm. Tina Turner. And so at the moment, this moment in time, it's her great songs, River Deep, Mountain High, What's Love Got to Do With It. So I've got a lot of Tina going on. I normally don't have favourites because that limits us. I'm I'm open to to everything but yeah tina is that at the moment so the reason i asked you that question henry is because when i walked into the office there was some music pain playing in the cafe and immediately i started singing along to the music and it's just one of those strategies i think that it's about creating happy work spaces you know where you feel really good and you can relax and, you know, that's a communal area. So one strategy I would love to share is that create that happy workspace, introduce some music or something nice that people can connect to and feel good. What's given me joy at work uh, just this week is I have sent my book off to the copy editor. I finally got it finished. This is uh, Creating Joy at Work, five and one plus ideas for creating a happy workplace. And it's going to come back from the copy editor in two weeks and then I'll hopefully get it published. Fantastic. Looking forward to it, Henry. It's getting closer. It is. Well done. And mine, well, um, in terms of what's giving me joy right now, it's my allotment. Ah. So actually, the weather's changed you know, I've started planting my um, my peas, my squashes and also, but I went to go and water them the other day and it looks like not just am I only enjoying what I've planted, so are the slugs and the snails. So fingers crossed that they may leave me something to harvest in a few weeks' time. Excellent. Okay, so now we have Biate Boxness on Beyond Budgeting. So, Biate, tell me, what is Beyond Budgeting? Do you want the short or the long version? <laughs> Give me the short one to start with. Let me try the short one. Well, first of all, it is a somewhat misleading name because this is about so much more than budgets. It is about business agility and it is about really changing traditional management. But uh, the name still makes sense in one way, because if you want to change traditional management, you have to change what you find at the core of traditional management, namely the budgeting process and the budgeting mindset and the beliefs behind this stuff. Uh, Namely, number one, that you can't trust people. Number two, that uh, the future is predictable and planable. That is the main assumptions behind traditional management, which we are challenging in Beyond Budgeting. So if you really want to do something with uh, with this, you have to also do something with the budgeting process and mindset. But you also have to do a lot of other, other stuff. So, so what's wrong with a budget? I mean, surely it is a way that you can let people, give people freedom where they can work within it. You know, that uh, it's impossible to give a short answer on that one. But, uh, you know, it's a long list. But I mean, you know, it's, it's everything from it's an extremely time consuming process, making budgets, following up budgets, 
uh, assumptions quickly outdated. And this is a serious problem. It stimulates what I would call unethical behaviors. The lowballing, the gaming, the sandbagging, the resource hoarding, the frenzy December spending. I mean, these are not behaviors that we would like to see between colleagues. And this is a serious problem. At the same time, I'm not blaming anyone for behaving like this because people are just responding to the system we have designed for them to operate in. So uh, as you know well, if we want to change behaviors, it's not about fixing people, it's about fixing systems. But the list is longer. I mean, you have, um, for instance, to define good performance as uh, uh, hitting the budget numbers is a very narrow and mechanical language for that important question. And... uh, Uh, Also, this belief that it's a great way of managing cost. Well, I agree that a cost budget is a very effective ceiling on cost, but we tend to forget that it's just as effective as a floor in the sense that these budgets tend to be spent. And then last but not least, uh, a problem that uh, we'll probably come back to a bit later. Uh, I'll call it conflicting purposes, but um, it's a problem that is quite interesting because it's not too many have it on their list. But it, and it's a problem, but also it represents a, a solution, which I can come back to afterwards. But again, it is a long list. And the interesting thing is that I've been sharing this list of problems with hundreds of thousands of people around the world in the 25 years I've been working with this. And most people out there agree. Executives, managers, finance people, they all complain. And at the same time, they continue doing stuff, stuff that they admit is quite stupid. And... Um, One reason could be that these problems are regarded more as irritating itches and not symptoms of a deeper and bigger and more systemic problem, which is exactly what they are. Because, And this is quite fascinating because here we are looking at, first of all, quite old management technology. Budgeting as a technique is actually 100 years old, invented by Mr. James O. McKinsey. Oh, really? Yes. And, uh, you know, I I never met Mr. McKinsey, but I don't think he was an evil man. I think Mr. (laughs) McKinsey, he had the best of intentions back then. This was management innovation 100 years ago, and the purpose was to help organizations perform better. And I'm sure it worked 100 years ago, maybe even 50 years ago, but no longer today because things have changed. And today, this way of thinking, this way of leading, this way of managing is doing exactly the opposite. It has become more of a barrier than a support for for getting out the best possible uh, uh, performance in organizations. And it is definitely not creating happy workplaces, on the contrary. No, no, it's not. Um, So what's the alternative? Well, Beyond Budgeting has tested, proven ways of uh, doing this in more uh, adaptive and more human ways. And um, we have 12 principles in Beyond Budgeting covering both leadership and management processes. And the reason for that is that we need a coherence between what is preached on leadership and what is practiced through management processes in companies. That is very often uh, not the case. So we have, for instance, a leadership principle on autonomy, Not that unique, many others would say the same, but many others haven't thought much about what kind of management processes do you need to activate that that principle. And a classical example of the opposite that you find in so many 
organizations. I mean, they, they talk loud and warm about um, how fantastic employees we have on board, and we would be nothing without you. And we trust you so much, but not that much. Of course, we need detailed travel budgets, right? I mean, it's hypocrisy as one example. So creating this coherency between what is said and what is done is, is key in Beyond Budgeting. But we also know that the totality of these principles on the leadership side, we also talk about purpose, values, transparency, and, and so on. The totality of this might be a bit overwhelming for some people, uh, and I get that. Uh, if that is the case, we have a very logical, tested, and a kind of not, not a scary way of getting started. And it has to do with asking ourselves a very simple question. Why do we budget? What's the purpose of a budget? And that, that goes back to that conflicting purposes problem I mentioned, because most people would actually give you three different reasons why they make budgets. And now we need to think about budgets wider than just cost budgets. We're talking about profit and loss budgets, um, cash flow budgets, the kind of balance sheet, the full, the full Monty. And the three reasons are the following. Companies use budgets to set targets, financial targets, sales targets, production targets. At the same time, these budgets shall be a kind of forecast of what next year could look like in terms of you know, profit and loss, cash flow, and so on. So forecasting is the second purpose. And the third purpose is, of course, resource allocation, handing out bags of money to the organization on uh, operating costs and on investments. And it might seem very efficient to solve all three in one process and one set of numbers, which a budget does. But that is also the problem. And let me explain why. Let's assume that we are moving into a budget process and uh, upstairs, corporate finance, they want to understand next year's profit and loss. They start on the revenue side and ask responsible people. So what's your best numbers for next year? Everybody knows that what I'm now sending upstairs will come back to me as a target for next year, often with a bonus attached to it. And we know what that insight might do to the level of numbers submitted. Moving to the cost side, asking the same people, other people, what's, what are your best numbers for next year? Everybody knows that this is my only shot at getting access to resources for next year, right? And some might also remember that 20% cut from last year. And that insight and that memory might also do something to the level of numbers submitted. And um, I think you know what I'm talking about. And this is the gaming that we wouldn't like to see, right? The, the lowballing and the sandbagging and the... Uh, and this is a problem, not just because it destroys the quality of numbers, but even more because it stimulates this behavior I just talked about. So that's, that's the bad news. The good news is that there is a very simple solution because we, we can, and in most cases, should still do these three things, but in three different processes, because these are different things. A target, that is an aspiration, is what we want to happen. While a forecast, that is an expectation. It's what we think will happen, whether we like what we see or not. And resource allocation, that is about optimization of what is often scarce resources, namely money. And once you have separated, then you can start to improve each one in ways impossible when it was all bundled in one process and one set of numbers. So we can have great discussions around targets, 
to the extent we shall have them. That's a separate discussion. But if we have targets, how can we operate with targets that really inspire and stretch people with our feelings stretched, that people take ownership to, that people think are meaningful? How can we get the politics and the gaming out of forecasting so that we know we can trust the numbers? And how can we find more intelligent and effective ways of managing costs than what Mr. McKinsey could offer us 100 years ago? And we have very good and tested recommendations on all these three uh, target setting, forecasting, resource allocation. And once you have done that separation, moving into discussions around targets, what really motivates people? Well, that is a, a backdoor into bigger beyond budgeting discussions, right, about, about motivation. Resource allocation, um, well, do we need detailed travel budgets if we say we trust people, right? So that's a backdoor into the trust issue. So this is not just a, a safe and tested way of getting started, but it also uh, it takes you in, a, in also a safe way into bigger and more important uh, discussions. Okay, so give, give us some examples. You, know, you used to work for Norwegian company Statoil, who I think are now Equinor. How did you go beyond budgeting in that company? Well, first of all, we started out quite a long time ago. We're talking 2005, uh, and I was he- heading up that initiative. And uh, w- one example, uh, target setting. Uh, Equinor has no, hasn't had traditional financial targets for a long time. Instead, the, the company is, is inspired by football. You know, I have I have yet to meet a football team saying that the ambition for next season is to score 39 goals and get 42 points, right? They don't think like that, right? Um, those are budget goals, and, and, and that would be stupid. Uh, they think in terms of league tables, right? It's all about doing well against peers and hope, hopefully beating them all. And that's how Equinor is thinking. They have established a league table of 11 other energy companies, and the target is to be above average on the have got two financial metrics here uh, on both every year. These two metrics are are not that unique. We are talking about return on capital uh, and shareholder return. Th- those metrics have their issues, but the point is that the company is thinking in relative terms. And there are many benefits with these kind of targets. Uh, first of all, they are very robust against a VUCA world. It doesn't matter if energy prices are high or low. Are they high? They are high for everybody. Are they low? They are low for everybody. And um, these are also what we call evergreen targets. The companies had the same targets for for now, uh, yeah, all, all the way back till 2005. You don't need a big calculation and negotiation every year. Uh, so very self-regulating. And you, you can also apply these targets internally between units in a kind of Friendly competition, which is more focused on learning than on competition, but it is a great way of stimulating learning so that you, those struggling, know who to call to ask for help. So do they have any budgets at at Equinor? Well, in a way, it's a semantic question because the company still does what the budget tried to do for them, but because they've separated, they do each of these three things in so much better ways, ways, ways that solves all of these budget problems we talked about. So on, they do forecasting, uh, much more continuous dynamic forecasting where where things are updated when there's a need to do it instead of saying that, no, it's January 1, so you have to update your forecast. So kind of getting out of the calendar rhythm here. And then finally on resource allocation, again, a much more continuous um, allocation of resources. I mean, one example, 
Equinor does not have a traditional annual investment budget where you sit in the autumn and decide everything, exactly how much to invest, split exactly on these projects. And this is a project, this is a company that invests a lot between 10 and 15 billion US dollars a year. So we are printing a lot of money, but no traditional investment budget. Instead, there is inspiration from how we think about money in our private life, because there's a lot to learn of frugality and cost consciousness from how we think in our private life. In our private life, we don't sit down once a year in the autumn and decide that the plan everything and decide that the car will break down in April, right? And, <laughs> and, and if it does, well, we have to tighten a little bit. And if, if we win some money in the lottery, there was room for some more. We are actually quite dynamic and flexible. And imagine, you know, that car breaking down. Imagine it's so serious that you have to buy a new car. And you're going to the bank and uh, you're asking for uh, a loan to buy a new car. And the bank is politely telling you that, sorry, this is April. We are closed. We are only <laughs> open for lending in October. right? And of course, we laugh. But that is what the budget process is about. So back to Equinor, um, what the company says is that the bank is always open. So anyone, anyone can forward a project for approval at any time. How high up you need to go is regulated by a mandate structure to make sure that not everything is ending up upstairs. And whether you get a yes or no depends on two things. How good is your project and can we afford it as things look today? And within that project that they're talking about, will there be a budget or not? No. I mean, it's, it's, uh, there are no traditional budgets. I mean, a unit, a unit might have a, a unit cost target, which means that they can, they can spend more if they produce more. There might be a benchmark unit cost. So, uh, your unit cost should be uh, uh, competitive uh, compared to peers. Uh, there might be, an, in some cases, an overall burn rate guiding, which is not a budget. Um, there is a number, right, in the range of 1 million, 10, 100, but that is not the pre-allocation of money. That is meant there to help you so that you are not completely in the dark about what kind of activity level is expected for you expressed in monetary terms until something else is decided. Because that's actually one of the problems with a traditional cost budget. You are pre-allocating too much, right? Everything is pre-allocated in the autumn. The more you pre-allocate, the more you have to reallocate when things change. I mean, creating additional bureaucracy and, and, and waste of time. So at Happy, we, uh, we're, we're a training company, and what we don't do is fix a fixed amount of how many associate trainers we'll have. What we do do is we look at the income and then say 35% of that will be, will be what we spend on trainers. Um, is, that, is that an example of beyond budgeting? Absolutely, because that also, is also a relative way of th thinking, not in the football sense, but in connecting what we call input with output, right? So you can, you can train more if you earn more and vice versa. So it's a much more intelligent and, and effective ways of, of, way of thinking um, cost management than what a traditional budget would, uh, would spell out. Because in that traditional budget, you would have decided in detail how much to spend on training for next year, right? And not just the total, but split on uh, catering and uh, uh, fees and a um, lot of details, right? So... Um, It's about making the decisions too early and too detailed. That is what the traditional cost budget is. 
Okay. And the other big company that uses it is Handelsbanken, isn't it? So Handelsbanken is uh, is a Swedish bank with uh, around 700 branches in Northern Europe, quite big in the UK. It was uh, There was a time when it was the fastest moving bank in the UK. And it's absolutely, it's a brilliant company for many, several reasons. Um, one, one reason is that the company has no budgets, no targets, no individual bonus, and they hardly do any forecasting. Well, that's interesting, but there is more. This company has been operating like this since 1970. That's also interesting, but there is more. In that period, the company has been performing better than the average of its competitors every single year since 1972. Right? What's the strategy behind this? Well, a very simple strategy. They have said that we want to uh, perform better than peers by having a higher customer satisfaction, a lower cost than, than peers. Well, how, how do they deliver on that strategy? Well, then you are back to beyond budgeting. It is about a lot of autonomy to branches, right? Where, where almost all decisions are, are made. So these, these branches do not have traditional cost budgets. They know best what the right cost level is. They know best how to serve customers well. So a lot of autonomy combined with a lot of transparency because they do use league tables, not just to compare the bank versus other banks, but also internally to compare branches. So every month, any branch can see how am I doing on this metric, financial, non-financial, versus comparable branches. And if you are struggling on a financial metric, there will be no instructions from above that now you need to cut costs and do this and do that. The only message from above would be that we note that you have a problem, but it's your problem. You are closest to that problem. You know best what the right medicine is, and your medicine cupboard contains most of what is needed. Is this about uh, manning levels, local decision? Is this about salary levels, local decision outside the regulated area, and so on and so on? So a lot of autonomy. So in a way, it's a tough system, but this is just half the story because they also want to use this transparency around internal league tables to get struggling branches to call better performing branches. Hey, guys, what are you doing on since you are so much better on this metric compared to us? But they are not saints working in this bank, right? They are humans like you and me. So if you're a, if you're a great performing branch, why on earth should you help somebody that might start to climb and one day threaten your number one spot, right? So why should you help somebody else? In order to make that happen or to stimulate uh, that, they have said no individual bonus. Instead, all bonus is driven by how is the bank doing versus other banks. That gives everybody a reason to pick up their phone um, and say, yes, let's have a meeting. Uh, I want to help you. And I know that when some listeners now will smile and say that this is some kind of naive, blue-eyed Scandinavian management thinking that doesn't work in the real world. Well, this is exactly what Handelsbanken is doing in the UK as well, which is quite different from Scandinavia when it comes to these issues. So they have applied this uh, across the board. And uh, again, they have done 
extremely well. And in the UK, when they open a new branch looking for a branch manager, they always pick branch managers from competition. Yeah, Swedish expats too, ex- too expensive, cost is important. And they have no problem whatsoever with recruiting people from branch managers, from other competitors, even if they don't have individual bonus. Because in totality, this bank is still competitive, right? As a branch, these branch managers are allowed to be branch managers, right? They have a very different autonomy um, than, than they're in, 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 the, in the other banks. So, uh, yeah, again, it's a, it's a very fascinating uh, bank and one of the, not the only, but one of the kind of inspirations for the beyond budgeting uh, model. It's interesting because a lot of UK uh, listeners probably won't be aware of it, because uh, but they are actually an awful lot of branches in Britain, aren't they? And and you know they are not just doing well in financial terms. I saw a benchmarking on customer satisfaction uh, in between uh, UK banks, banks, and it was amazing. You had Handelsbanken up here, and then you had all the other banks clustered well below them. It's it was kind of uh, almost too good to be true, but it is true. And in a way, it goes back to their management model, which um, as the Jan Valanda, the, the kind of the CEO back then that um, initiated all of this, he said, this is about organizing your management model in line with human nature and not against human nature. And so, so indiv- individual bonuses are not a thing in Beyond Budgeting? No, I mean, we are very critical uh, for good reasons. And... I can hardly think of any area where there's a bigger gap between what most research is telling us and what most organizations and businesses are practicing. It's simply amazing. We have the knowledge, we have the research, and then these uh, business managers still believe that the answer is to dangle carrots in front of people's noses and say, do this and get that. I mean, I, I call it managerial laziness. It is so much easier than to take the longer leadership route through mastery, purpose, uh, autonomy, and belonging um, to help people motivate themselves than to dangle that, that, that bag of carrots. So, so again, our recommendation is some kind of common bonus scheme, for instance, the one that Handelsbanken has, because that is, again, about a common scheme, how Handelsbanken is doing versus other banks. And also that common scheme is interesting for, it's quite different from many other common schemes because it's the same amount to everybody. Oh, the same amount, not the percentage, the same amount. Same amount, no, same amount. So who has the lowest percentage bonus in that bank? The, the chief exec, presumably. Yes, isn't that crazy? <laughs> or sounds crazy? Or maybe not, because, I mean, if we for a minute kind of um, uh, disregard all the research and if we say that, oh, yes, you need individual bonus to motivate and, and so on, how come the guy at the top needs the biggest dose of that motivation medicine? I actually thought that's where you find some of the most interesting jobs in companies, but, uh, you know, there's so much that I don't understand. Okay, and tell us, could this work in the public sector? The answer is yes. And I've re- actually, I have a new book out and I have uh, written about this. And I would argue that the beyond budgeting, sorry, the the public sector, beyond budgeting is not just uh, as relevant for that sector as it is for the private sector. The public sector also needs it just as much. All the problems we talked about are just as relevant uh, in this sector. And of course, the the belief is that, uh, no, it can't be done because I'm giving this, I'm given this big bag of money once a year from the authorities above, so I'm stuck. But first of all, beyond budgeting is about much more than cost budget. 
But on cost management, I mean, even if you're given as a head of that public sector unit, if you're given a bag of money from above once a year, why do you need to turn around on January 1 and split that big bag into a million small bags and hand it out to the kind of tiniest box on the organization chart and kind of lock everybody in and lose all flexibility? So if you're given that bag of money, well, treat it as a constraint. Just like in a private life, you know roughly what your salary level is and you're optimizing continuously within that. That can also be done in the public sector. And these days we have proof from the Norwegian public sector. We have an um, organization called uh, NAV, NAV, which uh, is our kind of social services uh, unit, quite big. And they have 12 what I call client contact centers uh, across the country. And in 2020, they did a very interesting experiment. In two of the 12 centers, the message was that there is no cost budget. You guys just spend what is needed to do a good job and not more. And when 2020 was over, we could look at the results. And um, this was, of course, the first year of the pandemic, right? So all units had lower external costs, for instance, travel costs. But none of the units had higher cost reductions than these two pilots, minus 50% in both. So from 2021, the pilot was extended and expanded from two to six. And from 2022, all 12 are running without the traditional cost budget. If you want to recruit people, you still need an approval from above, uh, but there's no kind of traditional personnel budget. So, uh, yes, it's, it's a proof. It works with great results. Wow. And that book is called This is Beyond Budgeting, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. This is Beyond Budgeting, a guide to more uh, adaptive and human organizations. And uh, it is a shorter book than my previous ones, um, written for busy people with limited time to, to read, because those are the ones we need to reach. And you're also doing a real classroom course with Happy on 12th of July, a full day on Beyond Budgeting. Yes, and I really look forward to that. I'm looking forward to it too, absolutely. Um, Okay, finally, your three tips for a happy workplace. Well, first of all, go beyond budgeting. I mean, people... (laughs) uh, Actually, to be quite serious, I think it's all contained uh, within the 12 Beyond Budgeting principles um, because people like to work for Beyond Budgeting uh, organizations. Uh, they are attractive as employers. And of course, it is about autonomy. It is about trust. It is about changing work into more meaningful, value-adding uh, work. This changes work for executives, for finance people, for managers in a positive uh, way. And I think one very important part here is the that the credibility of leadership messages increases so much when people realize that there is a new consistency between what is preached and what is practiced. That is good news for executives. It's good news for employees and everybody, everybody else. I have to be honest, Henry. Yeah. Budgets is not my my forte. Is I'm good not? at spending money. No, I'm good <laughs> at spending money. Budgeting <laughs> is a challenge. But um, the content that Beate shared, I love that whole thing about changing behaviours. That changing behaviours is about changing systems and not trying to fix people. Exactly. And I love the real examples. The example from Statoil, the example from Handelsbanken, but especially the example from the Norwegian uh, DWP. 
the fact that they they did it in a pilot and then they spread it out across the whole organisation. Could you imagine us doing it in DWP in the UK? Wow, it'll be a challenge, but why not, eh? <laughs> Indeed, why not? Let's why do it. Not? That's it, you know. Another thing was about organising your management model in line with human nature and not against human nature. Yes. So putting people at the heart of leadership. Absolutely. And we have we have a session with him, don't we? July 12th. July the 12th, yes. So we've got a full day workshop with, with uh, Beate Bognes, um, where you can explore all the ideas of, of Beyond Budgeting. So again, if you want more information, check us out at thehappymanifesto.com. And you could also listen back to other podcasts that we have done. And leave messages. We'd love, to fi- we'd love to find out more about what you would like to listen to, what you'd like to hear, or whether you've got any questions. So let's create more joy at work. <laughs>